tonight we're looking at the book of Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, excuse me, or as Donald Trump says, two Thessalonians. And uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. <laughs> Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this place, this time that you have allotted to us to come together to wonder, worship so wonderfully through the gifts of Luke and Jessica. And, and we just thank you, Lord, that we can really understand the truths that govern over the realities of our world and not feel like we're just out there trying to figure it out. But God, you have foreordained the plan and, and we're part of it. And we thank you for that, Lord. As we look to your word, we pray for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the letter to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, was written as the same. Paul begins exactly the same introduction in verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians where he says, uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy, we might read it as Paul along with or together with Paul and Silas are sending this letter. Later on at the end of the book, in the second to last verse, he says in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. It's interesting. It's the first time he's actually added that distinguishing mark in all my letters because essentially it was Paul saying, my custom is that at the end of these letters, even though a scribe will be really taking down, kind of a secretary taking everything down and writing it out. I'm going to sign it in my own hand as an authentication that I am actually the author. And there was a special reason why Paul needed to emphasize that in this particular letter, as we'll see in a moment. He's writing, as he says, to the church, the Thessalonians, who are in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, basically, as we might assume, because of the two in front of Thessalonians, that this is a sequel to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. And following that initial letter, um, which in which he addressed their concerns about the second coming of Christ, uh, he's basically been informed, and we're not told exactly how, but he's been informed that there are additional questions, uh, not only on that subject, but especially things that had risen in light of the suffering and persecution that they were encountering. Uh, he doesn't go into detail telling us about what their sufferings were, but keep in mind when we talk about these letters, especially to these cities like Philippi, Thessalonica, and Corinth, these are very prosperous port cities that are uh, generally the citizens are enjoying a very uh, higher than normal standard of living. And yet as soon as these people come to Christ and profess faith, there are some immediate and very dramatic consequences. Uh, they essentially become ostracized from not only the social network, but as always is the case, the social and the economic network are always woven together so that many of them are ostracized from their families, they're ostracized from their jobs, and their community fellowship as a whole because in the ancient world, both in the Jewish community and in the Greek world, that the temple or the worship of the local gods and deities was part of the fabric of life. In other words, the belief was that the city's blessing was a direct consequence of their reverence for whatever local deity or god they happened to be worshiping. And so people interpreted that uh, a, a disaffection, disaffection or a departure from the local gods as a threat to the welfare of the community. And oftentimes if there happened to be a famine or a plague or a disease or some negative thing, a war or conquest that would come against the city, they would interpret that immediately to being a consequence of the lack of faith. 
on the part towards the local gods, and the Christians would immediately be subject to persecutions and hardships. So it wasn't just that people were unusual in this kind of response. In fact, it's a very common human behavior to react in that kind of way, to kind of identify the cause of hardships or difficulties that come into life, and to assign it to a particular individual or group that doesn't really fit into the norm of the whole. And so as a consequence, these people, as they've given their life to Christ and began to worship this strange God-man named Jesus, uh, they became the objects of a lot of suffering and persecution and really became, found themselves really ejected from not only the social networks, but also the economic structures of their local communities, and they suffered greatly. Uh, as was the case with the first letter, that was it too probably was written from the city of Corinth. Corinth is only about 330 miles, which is actually a long ways by foot. Uh, you could reach the city of uh, Thessalonica or Corinth either by walking on a highway over land, relatively safe but long journey, or you could sail by ship a much shorter trip in probably about a quarter of the time because these are all port cities along the Aegean Sea, as you can see from the, the map uh, of modern Greece today where the city of Corinth, Anth Athens, and also Thessalonica are still functioning cities uh, in, in Greece today. So <clears throat> basically, 1 Thessalonians, we said, was written somewhere around, around 50 A.D., this second letter probably would have been lit, writ, written uh, maybe a year later, around 51. Some say maybe even late, late as 52. But let's get into more of the substantial aspects of this letter. Uh, there are three things that Paul emphasizes in this letter. First of all, it's an emphasis upon standing firm in the face of the suffering and persecution that had come to them as a consequence of their faith. And in, in verse 15 of chapter 2, he makes this statement. He says, so, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you. So that keep in mind, they didn't have a Bible like we have a Bible today. Uh, Jewish uh, synagogues would have copies of scrolls of the Old Testament. The Old Testament would have been their scriptures, uh, even though the Gospels had been written, at least some of them by this time, uh, they were really not uh, uh, widely distributed as of yet. And so <clears throat> all they would have many times, if they were lucky enough to have a letter from someone like Paul or Peter or one of the other leaders, that would be really the source of written encouragement to them. So that what did they rely upon? They relied upon the things that were said. And so in this letter, Paul makes reference to the things that we told you, the things that we said. Now, we all understand how those kind of communications are subject to all sorts of interpretations and misinterpretations and misrecollections. If you're married, you've ever had a wife uh, argument with your spouse, you understand how often your spouse doesn't remember things correctly. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I hate to tell you this, but uh, studies have found that women's recollection of the facts are, are about 15% more accurate than men. So it, it, I, I'm so sad to report that. But nonetheless, my wife and I have had so many conversations where I said, well, remember when such and such said, no, that wasn't when it was happening. This happened then at this time in this way. And, you know, I remember telling a story about uh, a trip to Russia one time. I was speaking in a friend's church. And he had been with me, and I recounted this humorous event that had taken place with us. And after I got done, I said, did I report that correctly? And he said, no, but I liked your version better. So, you know, 
I mean, I, I hate to say it. There are times when I think I am absolutely correct and have it completely accurate, and it's amazing because this is the problem with memory. Memory has creative abilities. And so I think that many of my stories that I tell, I'm sure, are much more dramatic than they happened in real life, but don't tell anybody. So anyway, what Paul's doing is he, he recognizes they're going through this. He says, try to hold on to the things that we said. Remember what was communicated. Interestingly, we know from ancient cultures that their ability to retain in memory what was heard was significantly more accurate than ours is today. Not because they had greater capacity, but they had greater necessity. So that today, we don't really feel the pressure to remember things because it's written down, it's recorded, we can refer back to it. But in the ancient world, people oftentimes memorized the scriptures, particularly the, in the Jewish community, memorizing entire books, if not the entirety of the Old Testament, because that was the way they retained information and transferred it from generation to generation. Uh, even today in, in many of the, some of the Bedouin communities in, the, in, the, in uh, Saudi Arabian places, people can actually recite from 40 generations back their entire family lineage because they have this culture of committing these things to memory. So people often say, well, you know, if they had to remember it, they probably distorted it. But the fact is that we find that uh, actually ancient memory was quite accurate in most cases. So basically, that's the first reason he writes to him. He says, I, I just want to encourage you to stand firm. But secondly, um, he wanted to clarify this whole explanation about the day of the Lord. And one of the things that's interesting is the Old Testament prophets frequently use this phrase, the day of the Lord. In fact, I found some 26 different times where the prophets alone just said the day of the Lord and then went on to explain some event that was coming. It doesn't necessarily refer to simply a day, but almost always, if not always, a span of time. So that we get kind of hung up in the literalness of a word. The day of the Lord was a, a colloquialism, a, a way of expressing something that basically there's this span of time uh, of events that are going to transpire. It, it, and he's talking about any time in which God was going to bring judgment upon a people or group of, of individuals, but most often is associated by the prophets with this period of time spoken of in Daniel chapter 9, referred to as the 70th week of Daniel. In other words, Daniel, in, when God was prophesying to Daniel in chapter 9, he tells him, here's basically the chronology of events that are going to take place from the time that the command is given to rebuild uh, the city of Jerusalem, the walls of the city, which was, took place in the time of Nehemiah, until the coming of the Messiah and the end of all things. And so we go through that as a prophetic study. It's a fascinating study to go through because one thing you realize is that God literally has pinpointed uh, not only the day of Christ's coming, but he's also given specifics about the end of all things. But he tells us in this 70th week, it's basically a week of years. That is seven years. A week is seven years. It's a seven years of unprecedented and unparalleled turmoil that's going to come upon the earth. In fact, in Matthew 24, 21, Jesus makes reference to this. He says, there will be great distress. Uh, the word distress there is the word thlipsis in Greek. It literally means, we translate it often as tribulation. That's where we get our term, the tribulation, the great tribulation. There will be a period of great distress. And he says, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. So it's unlike anything that humanity has ever experienced. And it's going to be 
international, it's going to be global, it's going to be worldwide, that there's a time of distress that's going to come upon the earth that has no precedent. Daniel speaks that during this time that an evil prince, we refer to him often as the Antichrist, the beast. Uh, in Thessalonians, he's referred to as the lawless one, that he'll appear, he will rise to power, and he will first destroy. In fact, one translation says he destroys wonderfully, which is an interesting phrasing, the idea that it's kind of amazing what power he displays, and yet at the same time, in the end, he himself will be destroyed by the coming of the Lord. In fact, in verses 26 and 27 of Daniel, reading from the New Living Translation, it says, a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city. He's talking about the city of Jerusalem and the temple. One of the things, reasons we talk about there being a temple, rebuilt temple in Jerusalem is because of this reference and also of Matthew 24 where Jesus speaks of the temple. And he says, the end will come with a flood and war and its miseries are decreed from the time to the very end. He will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of sevens, that is seven years. And talking about making a treaty with the Jewish people for a period of seven years. But after half this time, at the three and a half year point, he will put an end to the sacrifices and the offerings. So it's an interesting portrait he's drawing here. The temple is going to be standing, so it has to be a rebuilt temple upon the platform that's in Jerusalem today where the Dome of the Rock sits and the and Al-Aqsa Mosque. The temple will be there. There will be a revived Jewish worship of sacrifice and oblations and other things that take place. And he says, in the, and this will come in consequence of a covenant that he enters into with the Jewish people. So we begin to understand that geopolitically things change very dramatically in the Middle East. And then he says in the midst of that, the three and a half year point, he will put an end to the sacrifices and the offerings. And then as a climax to all of his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration. We remember the King James translation, the abomination that makes desolation the abomination of desolation, which is, uh, again, what the NLT is taught, calling a sacrilegious object that causes uh, desecration. And he says, and that will ha go on until the end that has been decreed is poured out on this defiler, which at the end of the seven-year period, we have the second coming of Christ. So that uh, these events culminate, as he says in chapter 24 of Matthew's gospel, with Christ appearing in, in verse 29, he, Jesus said, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Not to be confused with great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. It was this second coming of Christ that Paul alluded to in the first letter, and he says you need to understand the sequence of events as they're going to unfold. Which brings me really to the last purpose behind this letter, and that's just a simple exhortation. Uh, uh, actually, I, I summarize that exhortation by the, uh, the verbiage that's used in Luke 19, 13 in the King James Version where Jesus told the disciples, occupy till I come. In other words, you need to not live differently tomorrow 
because you think that Jesus is going to come today. The idea is that we, we are to continue doing what we're doing today until the Lord comes. And uh, this is oftentimes, a, I think that it was St. Benedict who once was asked as he was playing handball one afternoon uh, what he would do if he knew that Jesus was coming back today. And he said, I would finish my handball game. And the individual said, well, is, you know, isn't that kind of unspiritual? And he said, if I, if I, anything I'm doing now should not be different if I knew he was coming today. <laughs> if it was wrong to play handball knowing he's coming tomorrow, then I shouldn't be playing handball today. And his whole point was simply this, that we live our life as is basically essential because we don't know the day or the hour. We just live our lives. We get up in the morning, we go to work, and we do our thing. And if Jesus comes while I'm on my lunch break or I'm in the middle of a, some task that I wish the world would end so I didn't have to do it, it doesn't really matter. I should be living my life the same way every day with the same passion and same motivation. So why did Paul feel it incumbent upon him to share these things, to say these things to them? Well, he reveals to us that there was a probably a spurious letter uh, it may have been just in the form of a teaching or even a prophecy that had left, as he put it, some who were, had become unsettled or alarmed. Here's what he says in the beginning of chapter 2. He says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled. The, the word there in riddle literally means be shaken up. You know, to be all discombobulated. He says, it's things that really upset you. In other words, they were in a state of turmoil. Or alarmed, which means to be troubled or frightened. To be, feel like you're under threat of danger. By some prophecy or report or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord had already come. In other words, that they had missed it. That they had become, their names were written into the Tim LaHaye series, Left Behind. That they had somehow missed out on the coming of God and they had been left behind. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. Uh, this had resulted, obviously and understandably, from some being, we might just simply say, distracted. I mean, if you thought that the Lord, you had been left behind, you would become distracted. I remember years ago in early days of our church, I remember a Sunday morning, uh, our children's ministry pastor would come into the sanctuary and, and to get, begin to get things ready for Sunday morning children's ministry. And he found a woman sitting in one of the pews weeping uncontrollably. And this was, you know, an hour or two before the service, or two hours before the service was even going to begin. And so he went up to her and he asked her, well, what's wrong? And she said, oh my God, you're still here. And he said, what do you mean? He says, well, I came to church and nobody was here and I thought the rapture happened. Well, the clocks had changed and she had forgot to adjust them. So she was there early, but she had assumed that she had come to church and nobody was there and she had been left behind. She was quite terrified. And I, I often thought that I, at my first heard, I thought it was kind of humorous. And then my second thought was, would not that be the most horrible thing to happen to you? to suddenly realize that God had taken away his church and somehow you weren't part of it. Well, we can understand how this would affect the mindset of people that suddenly they've lost all focus. In fact, why even bother evangelizing if the opportunity for people to be saved has been passed by? I think in many ways that may be the singular reason why Jesus doesn't tell us the day or the hour. 
that he wants us to approach every day as if today's maybe the last opportunity, but the most important opportunity for somebody to meet Jesus. If I'm thinking that Jesus is, is going to come tomorrow, I'm going to probably stay up all night ironing my white robes. You know, it's, 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 it would be a whole different approach and a whole different attitude because, again, he's going to catch us unawares. But also he said that some had become unruly. Uh, he uses the word idle, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But he says in verse 11 of chapter 3, we, we hear that some among you are idle, and they are not, they are not busy, they are busybodies. Now the word idle there again, as we'll see, means unruly even rebellious or disobedient. It doesn't mean that they're just sitting around doing nothing, but they're really not doing what God wants, which is a form of rebellion. And so he says, some of you have decided that you're just going to become indolent. You're just going to do whatever you want to do and live off the kindness of others. So essentially, that's why he wrote this letter, was to respond to this false report that had been put out. And basically, as we look at the book, we'll kind of go through it in its outline. It outlines, breaks down very simply by the three chapters that we have here. In the first chapter, he begins by saying that essentially that, that God's justice is going to come. And it's interesting how he says in verse 6, he says, God is just and he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Now, there are a couple of things I think that are important for us to notice in that statement. Number one, that people are going to reap the consequences of what they sow. The greatest challenge when you are suffering at the hands of other people or through the words of other people is as their darkness begins to attack your life, that you get seduced into entering into their darkness and responding in kind. It just occurred to me today that what Satan's objective oftentimes when he comes in rushing in like a flood of darkness is to so provoke you that you engage in the same kind of behavior and response. I mean, that's kind of that fight and flight response that's natural to us, that somebody says something to us that's unkind or hurtful. What do you do usually? I mean, you don't have to tell me, I know, you know, that most often you say something in response, I know you are, but what am I? Or I am rubber, you are glue, it bounces off me and sticks on you, you know, and liar, liar, pants on fire, you know, you, you come back with some kind of retort because your feelings have been hurt. And on a more serious level, I, know, I think that Satan seeks to engage us in that way. Because if we enter into the fray, if when somebody throws out the rope, we pick up the other end and engage in a verbal or relational tug of war, we've fallen into the enemy's ploy because we're trying to fight spiritual battles in, with physical means. And our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not to be fought. Our weapons of our warfare, Paul said, aren't carnal or, or human or fleshly uh, weapons, but they're spiritual. And so that when we walk in the light, what does light do? It repels darkness. The best way to resist the devil is to simply go further into the light of God's truth. And the more you immerse yourself in the light of God's truth, in his holiness, the more repulsive you will become to the things of darkness and the enemy will flee because he hates the darkness. And so it's so important for us to be, I think, to understand this in terms of our relational dynamics, that this is the great temptation. 
when, when something's going on that frightens us or affects us, that we are so tempted to want to fight fire with fire. And God says, don't return vengeance for vengeance, but just let it go. And we think, well, that's like doing nothing. No, it's actually doing the most powerful thing you can do. That when you go into the place, presence of God and you begin to pray and you begin to draw near to God, you walk in the light and that light pushes the darkness away and there is in found your victory. But it's interesting that Jesus, so that Paul says, don't worry about them getting away with something that they're doing wrong. They won't get away with it. Evil will be repaid. It will be rewarded. But then he adds, when the Lord is revealed. In other words, when Jesus comes, that's when the payment is going to come. You may not see people getting their just desserts in this life. And that's important to understand because if you're waiting around for God to get them for what they did so you can settle a score or resolve that problem and feel good about yourself, it may never happen in your lifetime. It may never happen. And there's nothing t more terrible than people who become cynical and bitter and resentful because they're waiting to settle the score for something that happened to them. And that's why I think that one of the things you need to be sensitive to, when you find yourself in your mind playing that game of, I'm going to get even, yeah, I, I know none of you have done this, but when you start find yourself going through that mental game of saying, oh, you know, and you begin to visualize and you start thinking about how this is going to get resolved and they're going to say this and then I'm going to say that and I'm going to sound so clever and they're going to be so put down and you're going this thing and you're, you know, am I the only one with this sinful issue? I mean, please help me out here. Throw me a straw, please. You know? uh, the simple fact is take that captive and rebuke it. That's from the Satan, and pray that God's blessing and grace would come upon them. Lord, bless them. Pour out your kindness on them. Do to them what I would love for you to do for me. And you'll, you'll find that as you do that, you're going deeper into the light of God's truth. And any darkness will flee from your life. It'll run away in terror because there's nothing the enemy hates more than light, the light of God. So, but it may not happen in your lifetime. It may not happen until he comes. But that shouldn't bother you because eternity is a lot longer than time. Okay? Secondly, he says, God's going to punish the rejectors. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord from the majesty of his power. It just struck me as I was reading that passage today that people who say, well, their hell is an eternal if hell isn't eternal, I don't know what everlasting destruction means. <laughs> I think everlasting, actually, the Greek behind that means it lasts forever. It's deep, isn't it? <laughs> you just turn the words around. Ever, it lasts forever and it has no end. It's not limited by any kind of time frame. It's an unending state. It is an eternal state and a condition. And it's a state that he describes as being a, a continuous destroying it's hard to imagine what that means, a continual destruction, a continual destroying. But that's the consequence of the rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is a, an emphasis that we have really gotten away from in the church because we don't want to sound like we're mean people. But there is nothing more unloving than to know that such truths and to withhold them from people who desperately need to know them and are going to be terribly affected by them if somebody doesn't tell them the truth. 
Now, if that's all you talk about, you're imbalanced. <laughs> Get a clue. But the simple fact is there is two sides of this coin. There is the love of God, the eternal gift of his grace and kindness and all that goes with that. But the other side is that people will be cast off from ever, forever, for eternity. The thirdly, he says to us that God will redeem and reward you. He says in verse 10, on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed, this includes you because you believed our testimony to you. That phrase, glorified in his holy people. I mean, it's staggering to comprehend that God wants to be glorified in me and in you. He, he intends to be glorified in you. I know, you're like me. We look in the mirror and think, How's that going to happen? <laughs> What's, well, you know, <laughs> there isn't enough Botox and cellulite in the world to, to do this. I mean, they, how can God be glorified in me? I have nothing special to bring. I have no great, great intellectual capacity, no great talent or skill or ability. And that has nothing to do with it. God says, I am the one who is glorious, and I'm going to glorify myself in you. You are, you are glorious. Understand that you are glorious in the kingdom of God's grace. And that's why he said, therefore, pray for us. He says, that God may count you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. Now, some people think, well, does that mean that I have to, to earn this salvation that God has given me or I have to prove that I'm worthy to be saved? I think that the way we need to understand it is kind of like marriage. My wife and I have been married uh, <clears throat> 46 years in June. It'll be 46 years. And uh, we're just as married today as we were the first day we got married when we said, I do, on June 14th, we were uh, of 1970, we were married, and we're just as married today as we were then. And the same thing is true that when you give your life to Jesus Christ, when I gave my life to Jesus Christ 47 years ago, I'm just as saved today as I was that first day. But let me tell you that my relationship with my wife has grown exponentially in those 46 years. My relationship with Jesus has grown exponentially. So what happens, what transforms is that relationship and that relationship becomes about understanding more perfectly the purpose of what God's will for my life, the purpose of that relationship. And this is what Paul is saying. He says, though everything that is prompted by faith in your life fulfills his purpose for you. Is it prompted by faith? Faith in him. So, he goes on in chapter 10, after setting them, uh, them up with this whole thing of saying, first of all, essentially he's saying to him, I want you to be secure in your salvation. You're worried that the Lord came and didn't take you. I want you to be secure. You're his. You belong to him. He has redeemed you. He has saved you. You're his purchased possession, and he's going to glorify himself in you and to trust in that. But <clears throat> secondly, where you're an heir is that that day isn't going to come until certain other events follow. The biggest thing he talks about is the apostasy will come. He says that day will not come until the rebellion or the word apostasia in the Greek occurs. Now apostasia in this context uh, can mean a lot of different things, but probably most importantly it means a worldwide turning against God and his gospel. 
a world international event. He's, I don't know that he's talking about a falling away within the church, although that's a, certainly a possibility, and, and there's some things that suggest that's the case. But he says that the whole cultural dynamic of the world, religiously, economically, and every other way, is going to become anti-Christ in its focus. And that seems to be what the book of Revelation certainly uh, indicates. But he goes on to say that secondly, the man of lawlessness will be revealed, or the Antichrist will suddenly be obvious. He'll be revealed. He'll come out into the open and no longer will be a hidden personality. And why is he revealed? Well, first of all, he says he sets himself up in God's temple. He sets himself up as the object of God's worship. He proclaims himself to be God. And so it becomes pretty apparent. In other words, he has to violate the relationship that he has with the Jewish people. Uh, and that's why it's interesting. It's an interesting point of speculation and prophecy. How does he, this world leader, relate and interact with the Jewish community? Um, and, and that's something that we can speculate, but can't say with any certainty. But he says also it can only happen when the restrainer no longer restrains. In other words, he says the one who knows, now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. So there is something that is hindering the Antichrist from coming onto the scene. Now, my personal view and belief is that Satan has been attempting to bring up a one-world leader through all of human history. I think that when we read in chapter 11 of Genesis about Nimrod and him rising up in the Tower of Babel, I think we're seeing Satan really showing what he wants to do, create one world religion all based upon the worship of a man who is basically a demon-possessed expression of his own self. And that doesn't fail. But you look through history. When you look at the, the Genghis Khans and the Attila the Huns and, and uh, even the Napoleons and the, certainly the Hitlers and the Stalins, and you go through this whole list of these, these men who have sought to gain positions of world dominance and control the world, always through conflict and always through conquest and always through death and destruction. These megalomaniacs that have risen over and over again and amazingly have always come to the this point of the, what we, we recognize after the fact as being the peak of their power because as amazing as their rise to power is, so precipitous and sudden is their fall and their collapse. And that's because they're restrained. It's almost like, you know, we, we try to assign it, historians assign it to some uh, epical event that took place or some decision that was made. And yet in the, in the balance of things, it never really is understandable. There's kind of this X factor out there that brings these totalitarians to an end. And the reality is, biblically at least, is that God simply says, no more, because the time is not yet. It's important for us to understand there will be a time where that restraint will be removed. And what Hitler and Stalin and Napoleon, and, and he said, unless you're French, I apologize. Many French still consider Napoleon a hero. But uh, these people all attempted, were unable to do, these, this man will be able to accomplish it. Because now God allows it to happen which is one of the you know, fundamental principles about living our lives in, in the flow of history, that there is nothing that, that touches your life that doesn't do so by the, except by the allowance of God. That's a critical concept to understand, especially if you're ever going to have victory over hardships and trials and difficulties. 
Because what happens when you go through a, a difficult time, you know, we want to assign cause and blame and say, uh, this person did that to me or this, this circumstance caused this. It's, uh, it's the price of oil or the non-price of oil or, or the Japanese, the Chinese, it's this thing, it's that thing. And the, we, we assign all these conspiratorial issues and I'm not saying there aren't conspiracies, but in the end of the day, if it touches you, it's because God has given it permission to touch you because he's seeking to extirpate something out of your life otherwise you wouldn't give up. And when we began to embrace, say, God, what is it? What is the the reason, the purpose behind allowing this to affect my life? That's when we begin to heal. That's when we begin to grow. That's when we begin to learn. So I had a long conversation with somebody struggling in a very painful marriage relationship. And uh, another city, another place, you don't know them, so don't worry, they're not in the room. But as I was having this long conversation, and, and, you know, the, the, and the temptation that is to simply talk about this person and the spouse who's committing all these terrible things and offenses and hurts and so forth. And, and I'm not saying any of it was untrue. In fact, at the end of the conversation, I'm saying it's not, it's not me. For, I'm not going to referee this. It's not even my purpose. But what we have to do is sit down and say, God, what are you trying to speak to my life? What are you trying to accomplish in me? What, what are you trying to bring me to the end of in terms of my life? Because I can't fix that other person. I can't change them. I can't adjust their attitudes, uh, especially me. I don't even know what a right adjusted attitude even looks like. I have trouble figuring that out for myself, much less for anybody else. But what I do know is God speak to me and, and address my issues. Let me grow as a consequence of these things. It's not an exciting thought for most of us, but it's so important. Because not only when he restrains, one of the things going to happen when the restrainer no longer restrains, he goes on to saying, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of what? How does Satan work? Counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders in every sort of evil that deceives you know, again, we come back. We expect Satan to kind of come out with flashing neon lights, devil on scene, you know, and he's going to manifest his evil works. He's got the red, red skin tights, you know, and, a, and he's got the horns and the pitchfork. I mean, we, we have these caricatures in the mind of this obviousness. And Paul says, but no, he masquerades himself as an angel of light. He comes with counterfeit things that he says, this is God, when in fact it has nothing to do at all with God. And that's why he says that they perish because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. In fact, he says, not only is there deception, but he says there will come a powerful delusion, that God will send them a powerful delusion that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. How does anyone discern whether something is true or not? When you see a miraculous thing, a a wondrous thing, an amazing thing, how do we know whether that's God or not God? Well, actually in Genesis, excuse me, in Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 17, the Lord gave a, a, a way of knowing. He said, if a prophet comes to you and does a sign or a wonder, and then he tells you to worship gods, other gods that you have not known, then take that prophet out and stone him. Now, that means something different in Washington State. We're getting stoned is legal, but that's not what he's referring to. Take him out and eliminate him, right? He's not, for those of you who might get confused by terminology, he, you know, he's supposed to be gone and off the scene. 
And that's the whole point. He says, how do you know? Because he's telling you something that contradicts what he's already told you. This is how we know. This is how we figure out. That's not truth. And that's true not only for you and I in our own personal journey. How do I know whether something's true in my heart or my thought life? Well, it's by reading this book and letting it speak into my life. But also when someone begins to come out and, and, and present themselves as being a follower of Christ and yet they profess things that contradict. They, not that we're not subject to error, we all are, but you can tell when it's just a falsehood. He says, no, it doesn't matter how wonderful or beautiful or how winsome or attractive it is. Is it the truth? Because truth and reality uh, are, are interlocked. If something is true, then it works in the real world. If it's not true, it doesn't work. That's the problem of believing a lie because a lie will always disappoint. It'll always let you down. It'll fail you because it's, it's not really true. And that's why when we know the truth and we follow the truth, then we're standing on firm foundation that won't give out from under us. So he says, let that be the, the objective measurement. Well, he goes on to say, uh, then, he's, uh, then he goes into our really what, um, lastly, he says in the th chapter 3, that we should stand firm and hold to the teachings, he said, we passed on to you. And how do we do that? How do we stand firm and hold on to those teachings? Well, he gives us uh, three things that we need to do. Number one, he says, it's by prayer. He says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored, just as it was with you, and pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith. It's just a side note, but important, that in this short book of three chapters, four times, Paul talks about prayer as being an integral. So we have to understand that, that prayer was an integral part of Paul's life. It was an integral part of Jesus' life. I, sometimes people say, well, why do I need to pray? The only the best argument I have is Jesus went away and prayed. <laughs> if Jesus had to pray, believe me, you need to pray. You really do. But there's something else. I, John Knox once said, the man who advances on his knees will never need to retreat. So the very first thing Paul says, just keep praying that we can continue to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. That that's the best way because the best way to stand firm is not to be holding your ground as much as it is to be taking new ground and moving forward in your life. The secondly, he said, by following the Lord, by his direction, he says in verse five, may the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. God's love and Christ's perseverance. Follow him in those things. And then thirdly, I, I sum it this way, avoid non-redemptive relationships. You know, there are two kinds of relationships in this life. There's the ones that build you up and there's the ones that don't. And the ones that don't not only just aren't just inert, they tend to take you down. It's, you're, they tend to either take you, move you forward or take you away. And he gives us some examples. He talks about what we referred to earlier, the disorderly. He says, keep away from every brother who is idle, which again means disorderly or unruly or rebellious, disobedient to God, and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. So first thing he says, you know, don't, don't, hang out with and, and make your life with people who are going in a different direction. I mean, I'm not saying that you don't have association at all with people who aren't walking with God, because Paul had said to the Corinthians, you have to leave the world in order to do that. You have to get off the planet. But at the same time, 
when it comes down to who are those that I companion with in my life? He says, if it's people who are being disorderly and unruly, don't companion with them. Don't make them the, the pace setters of your life. The th secondly, he talked about people who were indolent. He says in verse 10, even when we were with you, we gave you this rule of a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They're not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread that they eat. There's a certain not only human dignity in that, but it's also a sense of responsibility that none of us should ever want to be in a dependent relationship where we are not also giving. Interdependence is one. Independence is unbiblical. Dependence is unbiblical. Interdependency is what the scriptures teach, that we depend upon each other. We minister to each other and we serve one another. So that he says, take those people who have suddenly basically become idle in their spiritual life, in their relational life, in their economic life, and tell them, you need to start getting busy. You need to work on this. Somebody once put it this way. There's a reason why it's called the Christian walk. <laughs> it's not the Christian stand. You know, it's the Christian walk. It's a, it's a journey that we're on. And the problem is, again, if you don't continue to move forward, it's like being on an escalator. You stop and you start going backwards. You're not going to be able to continue to move forward with Christ unless you intend to do so. And then, last of all, it's the unrepentant. In verse 14, he says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him. And literally, the word associate implies this, again, close, intimate fellowship with this person. In order that they may feel ashamed, yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So Paul trying to create this balance. You don't want to become hateful. You don't want to become rejectful, rejecting. You want to become unloving towards them. But at the same time, the way I put it, don't let them set the pace of your life. Don't let them be the, the drumbeat that you march after, but rather follow the, the lead of the Lord and join in with everyone else who is doing the same, and you'll find yourself being fruitful. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that um, you would warm our hearts to your truths. I, I love how Paul says that, that we are to be ones who receive what he has communicated to us in your word, and I pray, God, that that would describe my brothers and sisters, and myself as well, that we understand, Lord, we admit that, that we're strugglers, that we, we battle, we, we slip, we fall, we get up, we get, keep on moving forward. But God, we understand that there is no purpose in life without you being the purpose of our life. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to continue to walk faithfully and to follow fast after you, that your grace might rest wonderfully on us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.